Well, we are in the midst of a series that we're calling Disaster Proofing the Family. So if you have a Bible, you can find the New Testament book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 5. I'm going to introduce our study this morning with an illustration that's probably the most overused illustration when it comes to pastors teaching on the family. I tried to avoid it, I just couldn't because it's such a good illustration, and so I'm going to use it this morning to introduce our topic, even though I'm sure that a number of you have heard it before. It's called The Seven Ages of the Married Cold. Anybody heard that before? Maybe I'm wrong. The Seven Ages of the Married Cold gives us some insight into marriage. First year, the husband says, Oh, sweetie pie, I'm really worried about those nasty sniffles you have. There's no telling what that could turn into with all the strep that's been going around. I'm going to take you right down to the hospital and have you admitted for a couple of days of rest. I know the food is lousy there, so I'm going to bring you some takeout. I've arranged everything already with the head nurse. The second year. Listen, honey, I don't like, this, I don't like the sound of that cough. I called the doc and he's going to stop by here and take a look at you. Why don't you just go ahead and go to bed and get all the rest you need? Third year. Maybe you better go lie down, darling. When you feel lousy, you need the rest. I'll bring you something. Do we have any canned soup around here? Fourth year. No sense wearing yourself out when you're under the weather. When you finish those dishes and the kids' baths and get them to bed, you ought to get to bed yourself. Fifth year. Why don't you take a couple of aspirin? Sixth year, you ought to go gargle or something instead of sitting around barking like a dog. <laughs> Seventh year, for Pete's sake, stop sneezing. Are you trying to give me pneumonia? You'd better pick up some tissues on your way home from the store. My how things change, right? Uh, so we have the seven ages. Some have called it the seven stages of the married cold. Well, the fact is, your marriage is going to get better or it's going to get worse. I don't think there's any staying the same. The good news is for us, as we can all relate, at least in one way or another, I think, to that, if we're married, and some of you will be married, so you can get a preview, or some of you can simply just pray for the rest of us who do get colds. The good thing is, we can open our Bibles, as I've already asked you to do this morning, and, and we can turn not to Dr. Phil or Dr. Laura. Uh, we can turn to the one who wrote the text on marriage. Not only that, he didn't only author the text on marriage, he authored marriage itself. We can turn to God. and We can do what we're going to do now. We can, we can do what we always do at Omaha Bible Church. Uh, we open the Bible so that we can hear from God. We want to hear what He says. He made the first man. He made the first woman who were perfect, by the way. He understands. He understands what we need to be. He understands what we need to do. And even though sin has entered this world, and even though left alone, our families will be disasters. Ephesians is all about new life. It's all about being redeemed and, and being one of God's children and then living like His child. And now being able to have hope not only for eternal life, but also hope for our families, hope for our husbands, hope for our wives, hope for our children. And that's what we're doing. We're studying the book of Ephesians right now, and, and right now we're on this very important section that deals with the family. 
Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 through 33 is what we'll be studying this morning. We started it last time, and in this passage of Scripture, I want to highlight for you four divine lessons for husbands. Four divine lessons for husbands. Four lessons for husbands, they come from God, thus they're divine. Let me review the first two with you because we looked at them last time. Number one, they all start with loving your wife. Number one, husbands... Loving your wife is your duty. It is your duty. Now, I hope you love your wife because you love your wife. But when it's all said and done, whether the feelings are there or not there, it's your duty. And it's your duty, as we saw last time, because God says to do it. And if you're a Christian, you say, God is my Father, and you do what He says, so it really is your duty. It says right there in verse 25, Husbands, love your wives. It's a command. It is even what's called a present tense command. So it means it's something you're supposed to always do. As I said last time, this is not a Valentine's command. This is not for February 14th. This is for all the days of your married life. Husbands, Always, forever, be in a state of, be in the mode of, being, being uh, focused on loving your wife. Love her all the time. The second divine lesson for husbands is this. Loving your wife is to be Christ-like. Loving your wife is to be Christ-like. That is a Christ-like love. And we see this in verse 25. It says, Husbands, love your wives. How? Just as Christ also loved the church and gave Himself up for her. It's Christ-like love. Okay, God, You're helping me understand. I'm always supposed to do this. What does it look like? It's to be Christ-like love. This means it's what? This means it's, uh, according to that verse, it's unconditional. Just as Christ loved the church... Uh, Christ, in case you weren't here last time or in case you've forgotten, wasn't waiting for the church to be lovely so that He could love her and die for her. Uh, We were a mess. We were, according to Ephesians 2, dead in our trespasses and sins. Romans 5, we were God's enemies. And Christ dies for us. So it's unconditional. It's not, uh, men, uh, your love for your wife isn't based upon whether or not she's lovely. It doesn't. Uh, it's not based upon whether or not she can cook like Betty Crocker. Uh, it's not based upon whether or not she has the homemaking skills of Martha Stewart. Uh, it doesn't matter if she has Victoria's Secret or not. Love your wife unconditionally all the time. That's the focus. That's what he's saying here to us. It's very straightforward. It's a grace love, just as Christ's love was a grace love. And in my opinion, as a pastor, I think this is the biggest issue for us men. I think it's the biggest issue for men who have problems at home. All of us have problems at home at one time or another. This is the issue. Somehow we want to make our love for our wives conditioned upon them being lovely. Or them doing what's right. Or them being submissive, which this passage talks about. But the Bible doesn't say that. You love your wife absolutely, no matter what. It has nothing to do with whether or not she's godly. We want her to be. God wants her to be. The passage talks about it. But my role toward my wife Molly in no way is conditioned upon her fulfilling or not fulfilling her role. I love her. That's what I need to do. I'm commanded to do it. That's what I'm called to do. 
And I think a lot of problems would be solved if we really got this. I, I, I give the speech all the time. I don't know how many times I've given the speech to men. To couples, too. Oh, yeah, I understand. Yeah, I understand. No, you don't understand. <laughs> because you keep saying, well, she does this. I don't, it doesn't matter what she does. You do the right thing. And vice versa, it would be true if we were talking to wives. We've already passed that. Do the right thing regardless of what he does. Somehow we've got to get rid of this conditional mentality and I think we'd be on the road to disaster-proofing our marriages. Okay, let's move on now to new ground. Number three, third and fourth divine lessons. I'll give them to you now. Loving your wife is to, is to have her benefit in mind. It is to have her benefit in mind. And then number four, I'll give it to you now. Loving your wife is to equal, is to equal your love for yourself. It is to equal your love for yourself. It's to have her benefit in mind and to be equal to your love for yourself. Ready, guys? <laughs> Two weeks in a row. Some of you said to me last time, you were not hard enough on us. I don't know. I thought I was pretty hard. <laughs> I didn't think I skipped anything. We'll see how today goes. But the goal in all of this is for us to honor Christ and to honor the Lord with the way we love our wives. We're Christians. We want to do what He says. And I want to be as hard on myself as I am on anyone else. And If the shoe fits, wear it. Let's just say that. Third lesson for husbands to learn is that loving your wife is to have her benefit in mind. That's right, her benefit. Her benefit is the motivation. The motivation is not, I'm going to love her so I can get something in return. That's self-driven. I'm going to love her because I want her to benefit. Too many times we read verse 25 and 26 this way. Let's go ahead and read it, and, and I'm purposely going to change it. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave Himself up for her. We sort of gloss over that. We're not really thinking about what it means. Verse 26, so that He might... Here's my translation of how us men think. So that He might amass brownie points as manipulative collateral and in the end get what He wants. That's the revised standard perversion. Okay, That's what that is. Somehow it has to do with motivation. Yeah, okay, Pastor, I gotta love her. I'm gonna do all this stuff. I, I, I'm getting the message, and and somehow the motivation ultimately in my sinfulness is because in the end it's gonna be better for me. And there's truth to that, no doubt. But that's not what he's talking about here. This is for her. This is all about her. So, husbands, as we're gonna model Christ-like love, and we're gonna focus on it here in just a second when we look at the real verse. It's always with the, with the goal, the end is not what you're going to get. The end is, you're going to do this for her to build her up. Because this is what Christ did for the church. It, it, it was to sanctify her, it was to cleanse her, it was to, to make her beautiful in her holiness. Maybe that's the best way to summarize it. Christ's goal for, for the church, His bride, was, was to make her beautiful in her holiness. Let's look at it. Verse 25, we come off of that. Then verse 26, why did He love the church the way He did and give Himself? Verse 26, so that He might sanctify her. This is a rags to riches story. So that He might take her and she's unclean, she's not beautiful, talking about the church, and He would sanctify her. He would cleanse her. He would purify her. He would make her a beautiful bride. That was Christ's goal. 
It was a rags-to-riches story. It is a rags-to-riches story. Spiritual rags, that makes me think about Isaiah 63, isn't it? And then we're pure. Well, that's what Christ did for the church. Rags-to-riches. He brought purity, and He bought purity at His own expense. Sanctify her so that He might sanctify her. That's what He did. And it cost Him everything. Did you know that it's the only thing that ever cost God anything? Did you ever think about that? What's the one thing that cost God something? Did it cost God something to create? No, He just said it and it happened. He didn't have to make a down payment. He didn't have to set up a loan through the bank. It didn't cost Him anything effortless. The only thing that ever cost God anything was when He had His Son die in our place so that He would sanctify her, us, the church. It's great cost, profound cost. The only thing that ever costs. So when I'm thinking about my wife and I'm supposed to to sanctify her, I can expect it's going to cost me something. I can expect that as I'm seeking her benefit to build her up, it is going to be costly. It's going to be the most costly. How about if I carry the analogy through, the most costly thing I will ever do, if this analogy really does hold steady. Cost God everything. Men, if you're really going to do it, I don't think it's a stretch to say it's going to cost you everything. It'll be the most costly thing you ever do. So when you hear, husbands, love your wives just as, get ready for great sacrifice. Because His sacrifice was the greatest. Progressing further with this purity motif, he says in verse 26, having cleansed her. See, it's still about beauty and holiness. Having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word. Whatever that's about, it has to do with cleansing, right? It's again sanctifying, purifying, making her beautiful, spotless. But what I think he's doing here and I would be in good company. He's borrowing an ancient bridal ceremony. An ancient bridal practice. It was this prenuptial bridal bath. In fact, that imagery is even used in our Old Testament in Ezekiel. If you have a Bible and you're familiar with it, you can turn to Ezekiel. And I want to go ahead and read this. If you're not familiar, you can just listen. But... I think to understand this passage, you need to understand a bit of that imagery, and you can even find the imagery in your Old Testament in Ezekiel chapter 16. If you're in the Old Testament, you can go to Psalms and just move your way to the right. Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel. I think you should write it in your margin. You're going to understand, what is this washing of water with the Word? Some people say, well, that's water baptism. The church is never said to be baptized. It's not water baptism. It has nothing to do with water baptism. This is a picture of this ancient bridal uh, ceremony. And in Ezekiel chapter 16, God is portrayed as one who is going to join Himself to a bride, Israel. The context is even coming to Israel when she is an abandoned baby. And here is this abandoned baby who has been, been cast out, who is bloody, who has been discarded. And here is God going to come and God is going to rescue Israel and He's going to make Israel His bride. And He's going to bathe her. 
says in Ezekiel 16.8, we just skipped the first seven verses, then in verse 8, Then I, God speaking, passed by you, Israel, and saw you, and behold, you were at the time for love. That is, now you're a little bit older from when I first came to you. Now you're at marital age. So I spread my skirt over you and covered your nakedness. Uh, an ancient act of betrothal and protection. I also swore to you and, uh, and entered into a covenant with you, a promise, so that you became mine, declares the Lord. It has everything to do with this marriage. Then verse 16, chapter 16, verse 9 is what I wanted you to notice. Then I bathed you with water and washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. Now, it's not familiar to us because we don't do this. Transport yourself a few thousand years. They had this prenuptial bathing and this prenuptial bath. And here God is saying, Look, Israel, I'm going to bathe you. I'm going to purify you. And I'm going to prepare you for the great marriage to me. I think this is what Paul had in mind when he said what he says in verse 26. This ornate description, to us it may not be ornate, but it certainly is with an Old Testament mindset. It's beautiful, it's caring, it's nurturing, it's purifying. I think that's what he's get, Paul's getting at in Ephesians 5. He may have even had Ezekiel in mind. I don't know the answer to that. So, men, as you love your wife, and you want to sanctify her, you want to set her apart, you want to present her in her beauty by loving her like Christ loved the church... You see, the picture is very beautiful. It has everything to do with cleansing. It has everything to do with purity in Ephesians 5. There's nothing to do with water baptism. The church isn't baptized. As a matter of fact, it says the Word is what actually brings this about. The Word of salvation, the Word of God, the Word, the Gospel. So Christ is the example. He's the ultimate example. Look what He did for the church. He gave Himself the only thing that ever cost Him anything. Then He purified the church and cleansed her and made her beautiful and ornate and awesome. And He's our example. It's a majestic picture. And the picture gets better in verse 27. I mean, it couldn't get more majestic than this. Look at verse 27. That He might present to Himself, I believe a reference to His return ultimately, present to Himself the church, I love this, in all her glory. This is His bride. In all of her glory, all of her splendor, all of her beauty, all of her majestic, wonderful appearance having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy. Second time he's brought that issue up. And blameless, one leading to the other. Here we have Jesus Christ, the, the eternal Son of God, cleansing His bride, purifying His bride, dying for His bride, making her beautiful, spotless, blameless, pure, this, this, the most beautiful bride you could ever imagine. And men, the analogy is, we love our wives like Christ loved the church. So that we can present her in all her beauty and in the beauty of her holiness. He loved. So what did He do? He sacrificed. And He sacrificed for us. 
It's not self-serving in any way. It has everything to do with us. Christ did all this for us. We do all the things we do for our wives for them, not just for brownie points. It's a love that sacrifices. It's a love that gives. By way of application, because we don't have time to try to unpack everything together, maybe here, let me give you a list of questions, men, for you to contemplate and to pray about. Here's some introspective questions. What are some of the specific ways that I do this for my wife or show this for my wife? Let's not be like James and be hearers of the Word and not doers. Oh, yeah, that's an interesting sermon, Pastor. Yep, need to love my wife. I think the intention is to to sort of assault your will and say, Hey, look, Bill, Joe, John, Pat. Do something here. And maybe if you're single, you can say, I'm gonna, and older, you can pray for others to do this. If you're younger, you can say, I need to think about this now. What are some specific ways that you do this? I, I wrote down uh, five. I made myself a note. Name at least five. Maybe I'll challenge you, men. At least five of them. Maybe this is how you can have your devotions this week. Put away your devotional book. I can't think of too many things that are more important than this specifics on how you show your love for your wife for the goal of her being built up. Another good introspective question, what is my motivation for loving her? We already talked about that. What is my motivation? And this is where I think you really need prayer because you'll deceive yourself. I'll deceive myself. What is my motivation Is it so I can get something? Or is it ultimately for her? Another question. I like this one. Because it hurt me and I want it to hurt you. What good has come as a result of my love for her? We're talking tangibles. What good has come? What benefits have come to your wife as a result of your love for her? Because the analogy with Christ is He loves to build her up, to purify, to cleanse her. That's the goal. Okay, men, if that's been your goal or if it is your goal, what's the evidence? Christ, we're the bride. We're pure now. We're holy. We're fit to be blameless before God. See, mission accomplished. There's a tangible. Here you are in your human life, men. You're called to love her just as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. Any tangibles? How is your wife different today as a result of your love for her yesterday? Or ten years ago? See, that's really getting at the heart of the issue. One more question. Is Jesus really my point of comparison? Is Jesus really my point point of comparison? Men, here's the rut we fall into. We look at other people and we can find someone who's worse than we are. 
In fact, those of us who are believers, we talk to unbelievers about that all the time. We say, you know what, unbeliever, when it comes to being saved, you need to stop comparing yourself to other sinners because you can always find a worse sinner than you. What you need to do is know that Jesus Christ is perfect and He is the standard. Well, let's think about it the same way, man. He's the standard when it comes to our marriage, too. I've met with enough people and seen, seen enough boneheaded husbands and heard them to walk away and think, sheesh, I'm going to go home and tell Molly that I'm not so bad after all. <laughs> we'll change the names to protect the guilty, I suppose, but I'm going to let her know. It's not bad to be thankful, but come on, guys. That's going to lead to you being spiritually lethargic in your love for your wife because you can always find someone who's a worse husband than you are. I don't want to be complacent. Christ is my example. Christ is my example. I need to compare myself to Him. Fourth and final lesson for husbands to learn. Loving your husband is to equal your love for yourself. To equal your love for yourself. It says in verse 28, if you'd look with me, that'd be great. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. That's simple enough, isn't it? Your love for your wife or wife-to-be should be equal to the love that you show your own body. You say, what does that mean? How do you show love for your own body? I made myself a list. Here's my list of the last two weeks. Just a starter. In the last two weeks, I took 14 showers. I brushed my teeth no less than 30 times. I put gel in my hair at least 14 times. I shaved at least 10 times, Saturdays and Mondays off, of course. I cut my fingernails. I put on a total of about 30 different clean pieces of clothing. I didn't miss a meal and drank soda whenever I felt like it. I worked out seven times. Should have been eight. I read for pleasure. I slept. I took vitamins. I bought myself some new shoes and a sweatshirt. I bought three new CDs. I went to the movies. I played with my kids. I started, even started making some vacation plans for the summer. I got a haircut. I talked on the phone to friends. I shopped on the web. I prayed for my own needs. I studied and who knows what else. And you know the list could go on and on and on. I just started making a list of things I do for me, for my own body. Just things I do. I love myself. And it's not in some sort of narcissistic, uh, perverted way. I don't think the Bible's getting at that at all. Everybody loves themselves. If you take care of yourself, you're showing love for yourself. And even if you don't take care of yourself, uh, you might be showing love for yourself because you're offending everyone else by not taking care of yourself. But you see, the point is, it's a, it's, a, it's a truism that people, human beings, do love themselves. It doesn't mean we're always satisfied. Oh, I just love this physique that I have. I don't know of anybody who would say that. And if they would, they wouldn't admit it in public. But even that dissatisfaction shows a certain care about yourself. Because you're not satisfied and you want it to be better. We love ourselves. And the Bible's not trying to go into a lot of detail. It's just assuming that we know that. We care for ourselves. We're meticulous when it comes to caring for ourselves. And there's nothing wrong with that in that sense. But men, the analogy is, 
You love your wife just like you love yourself. I went through the last two weeks, I went through the last who knows how many years of my life taking care of myself. And I don't even think about it. It's second nature just to do these things that I do. And the Bible's saying, men, be just as meticulous. Have it be second nature that you take care of your wife the same way you would take care of yourself. That is pretty radical. That's extreme. If I take care of and love Molly the way I love myself, it's going to be noticeable. It's more than saying, I love you. I'm actually showing love as I show love for myself. I don't go around saying, I love you to myself. I show it. It's certainly more than a feeling, more than sentimentality. And men, you, you guys know, most of you are theologically astute enough to know that when Christ loved the church, it wasn't just a feeling. It wasn't just sentiment, although I know the feeling was there, the sentiment was there. Here we are, theologically astute, and we say, He didn't just say, I love you. What kind of Savior would He be then? He didn't just feel good about the church. He didn't just say, oh, you know I love you. (laughs) He did something. He actually did something for her. He acted upon it. He actually came to earth and acted. He showed love for the church just as he would care for himself. And that gets us into our analogy we're going to get to in just a moment. It wasn't just the thought that counted with Christ. It was a radical, sacrificial, cost-him-everything kind of love. He did something. And here's the reasoning behind it. Look at verse 28. He who loves his own wife loves himself. Say, what? Yeah, he loves himself. And he's going to start talking about Christ. If you love your wife, you love yourself. Why? He's going to tell us in just a little while. Let me give you a preview. Because you're one flesh. If you love your wife, you love yourself. Because you're one flesh if you're married, based upon Genesis 2. It's just normal. In verse 29, "For, For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. It's a truism. Nobody hates their own flesh. This isn't normal to do. Uh, yes, sure, we're dissatisfied at times, but we, we love ourselves. We take care of ourselves. And husband and wife, we're one flesh, as we'll see in a second. And so we take care of our wives. We love our wives. It's second nature for us. And it goes on to say in verse 29, just as Christ, He's our example, remember, also does the church because we are members of His body. Follow the analogy. Okay, we're one flesh with our wives. Genesis 2, one flesh. Our body. Christ is one flesh with the church. His body. So it really fits nicely. And to substantiate this, that Christ is one with His bride, the church, Paul quotes Genesis 2. I don't think he's just talking about... He's not talking about us here. He's he's talking about Christ. Look what he says. Verse 31, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one one flesh. 
But it's still in the flow of talking about Christ and Him being one with the church. He's using the marriage analogy for Christ and the church. And that's why this whole thing can work. And that's why this whole thing can flow. Men be just like Christ. And and you love your wife because you love your own body. And Christ, He's united with His bride, the church, and they're one flesh. We always go to Ephesians 5.31 to instruct husbands and wives. And I think that's fine because it's quoting Genesis 2. But really in the flow of things, Ephesians 5.31 is talking about Christ. He's one with His bride, the church. Then verse 32, He says, This mystery is great! It's a profound mystery. It's an awesome mystery that this can be so. You say, what is the mystery? It's not mysterious. Ooh, wow. It's not, uh, marriage is so mysterious, I could never figure it out. I'm just going to throw in the towel. This mystery is great. Put your biblical thinking cap on, your theological thinking cap on. And What's mystery mean? Well, over and over again in the New Testament, even in Ephesians, mystery means something that hadn't been revealed in the past. It's not mysterious, like a novel. Hadn't been revealed in the past. Well, is the fact that a husband and wife are one flesh, is that new information for Paul? Is that a mystery? No, that's clear back from Genesis 2. That's not a mystery. What is the mystery? The mystery. You can even search that word out in Ephesians and you'll see the mystery is this thing called the church. And, and, and more so, that the church is the bride of Messiah. The bride of Israel's king. This church idea. This has not been revealed before. This is new information. And now Paul's, in a sense, off on a tangent. He's not talking about marriage anymore. Now we're, we're getting a lesson in theology about this mystery, about this awesome thing that hadn't been revealed in the past that's so breathtaking that the church, Jew and Gentile, those who believe in Messiah, can actually be wed to Messiah. And He is the bridegroom and, and she is the bride. And this is a great mystery. It's what Paul gave his life to. What's interesting, this great mystery being taught to us in a section that's talking about husbands and wives. It is sort of a tangent. But notice what he says in verse 32 at the end, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. I mean, in a sense, I've gone out of the marital bound. This is this great, profound theological reality. But it's here for a reason, isn't it? For us to be so amazed at the bride, the church, and and Christ, the bridegroom. And, oh, look at the love He showed her. She was unlovely, and He gave Himself for her, the church, and sacrificed everything. The only thing that ever cost Him anything. And it does become ethical for us. We say, well, He's talking about Christ and the church, but I've just been learning that I'm supposed to love my wife like Christ loved the church. And so it all becomes very practical. There's no greater love than that picture that we see right there. And so it becomes very real for me, and it starts to push me. And yes, it's ethical, and I say, I do want to love my wife. I want to love my wife like this great mystery. I need to love my wife. I need to show the privilege of being able to do this and and to be able to display Christ and His great love for everyone else for everyone else to see. I 
I think these verses have proven a bit confusing because he's in and out. He's talking about marriage, and then it's tangent, and then it comes back to marriage again, as we'll see. But it's all for a purpose, all for reality. And I would challenge you with the fact that the two becoming one flesh in this context is Christ and the church. And that's what should impress us so much as believers to say Christ is one with His church. And that's normally the passage that's talking about husbands and wives. And so I have an opportunity. I even have the opportunity to have an evangelistic marriage to show everybody when I die to self, live for my wife, build her up, doing what Christ did. And all that brings him back to sort of summarize everything. He brings it back down to the, to the ethical and he says in verse 33, Nevertheless, nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife even as himself. Okay, I, I'm back to the point at hand here. And then verse 33 ends, And the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. The word respect the word where we get our English word fear. Obviously, it's not like he's some kind of tyrant, terrorizing fear. But I do want to translate it the way it was, and it's fear. And I think it's good to do that because it doesn't just show action, it shows attitude. Before he said submit, and that's an action. And that's certainly true. Earlier in the passage, wives submit to your husbands. But now he says, wives, fear your husbands. Not in a nail-biting, tyrannical kind of fear. Obviously not the idea because we're told that we're to live with our wives in an understanding way. They're co-heirs, etc., etc. First Peter. But let's go ahead and translate it the way it actually is. And it's fear because then at least we see that it doesn't have to do just with action. It's attitude. Wives, you're to have a submissive attitude toward your husbands. And that goes back to our previous study. I have a list before me of, I believe, 17 tips for husbands. Here goes, guys. Before we get to them, the passage isn't complicated. It's not complicated at all. You don't need to learn any new Greek words. You don't need to study more. You just need to go before God and say, help me to do this. And you need to make sure your love is tangible. And you need to make sure your love is for her benefit. And you need to make sure you love her unconditionally. This is not complicated. It's just hard to do. And so I did want to go the extra mile. Some of you men don't need these. I know for certain some of you men do need these. So this is the list I made for myself. Let me share it with you. If your husband's not here today... You might just want to give him the tape <laughs> instead of your notes. You don't need to preach to him when you get home. Maybe that's just my, that's my only advice for women today. <laughs> Certainly if you are a single woman and you would like to be married someday, these are things to consider and things to think about. And I think first and foremost you need to focus on being who God would want you to be. And the Bible talked about that but also to look at these things and to pray about these things. And This is the kind of man, God, I would love to have. These are the things I pray for my two daughters regularly. And it's going to be by the grace of God, but I'm busy asking all the time. 
these things would be so, and they would have godly husbands who would actually do these things. So there's something in this for all of us, but men, let's just deal with ourselves for a little while. Practical tips, some are practical, some are theoretical. Number one, tell her. Number one, tell her. Tell your wife you love her. I know it's more than telling her. Christ didn't just tell us He loved us and then do nothing. But I would encourage you to tell your wife that you love her because Christ has told us that He loves us. We learned it this morning. And I hope most of you are thinking, why in the world did the pastor think he had to say that? Well, I think that because some other wives in here are thinking, thank you. Husbands, don't. Well, you know I love you. The Lord tells us He loves us. And we find comfort in that. We find encouragement in that. And some men will not tell their wives they love them. Number two goes right along with it. Show her. And that's what we've been talking about here. Show her your love. Let me be kind of crass. Men, it's not the thought that counts. Think about the cross. Jesus didn't think happy thoughts. Jesus didn't think lovely thoughts. He didn't have good intentions. Only. He did something. He did something. Yes, his thought was right. His intention was right. But he went beyond that and he did something. And so you need to flush the idea that it's the thought that counts. Number three, be consistent. Be consistent. That's what Ephesians is calling for. That's why I've repeated myself over and over again and said this. In my Bible, it doesn't have February 14th stamped on it. Maybe there's some, some book somewhere. This is the Bible reading for February 14th. Present imperative. Always, forever, love your wife. This is the habit. This is the pattern. It's probably not going to happen overnight. But be consistent. Number four. Do things for your wife that involve your time, your attention, and your planning. And that's just a common sense one. Do things that involve your attention, your time, your planning. In other words, that cost you something. The most valuable thing I have is my time. I don't have time. I don't have time to plan. I don't have time to get done the things I need to get done. I don't have time. So when I give someone my time, I'm giving them the most important thing I have. Maybe your life is different. Maybe you have all the time in the world. Plan. I can think of a few things that I think encourage my wife. You would have to ask her. Like when I plan ahead for something and I have to give time and thought and care thinking about her because we're going to go on a special date or I'm going to buy her some special presents. Those are the ones that mean the most because she knows how valuable my time is. Probably the, the, the highlight of Christmas for me, and I'm falling like everybody else, so I'm not bragging about any of this, trying to make you men feel bad, but I'm learning, so I'm just going to share with you. This is a men's breakfast. Well, sh- Christmas shopping for Molly was fun this year. And I think maybe for the first time in my life, so I will repent, it actually involved time and planning and love and care. 
Natalie and I went, Natalie and Alexander and I went one day, and, and Molly wanted a microwave, and so we went consumer reports, and I've got it on my PDA, the right ones, and we're out shopping, and it was great, and we had a great time. Now, I know that, as my mom would said, if it plugs in, it's not a gift. <laughs> so my mother has trained me well enough to know I couldn't stop there, but I at least was going to start there because I knew she wanted it. That was so exciting, giving her the microwave, because she was just thrilled beyond measure, and she knew we did the research, and she knew we did all this stuff, and I took the girls, and we hit it, and it was a big deal, even though it plugged in. Then, Jonathan and Natalie and I went, and we went in her closet one day, and we figured out clothes that she likes to wear, and we wrote down the sizes and, and different things that she wears, and then, then we went to the store. And it was so fun with the kids going around thinking, okay, we like that, and we like that, and we like that. And, and, and we, we bought her all these clothes. It was awesome. And she liked it. Or at least she, or she lied, and then she's in a lot of trouble. <laughs> all of that to say, men, because I think some, sometimes I, I would say, do these things that take time and planning, and you still wouldn't get it. So I just wanted to give you some real life. Here are some things you can actually do that cost you that plan. Take time to plan. Number five, provide for her. Provide for her. Don't stop there, but you do need to provide for her. The Bible says if, if you don't provide for your family, you're worse than an unbeliever. So if you need to get a job, get a job. Your role in your family is to provide. Get two jobs if you need to get two jobs. Some of you have two jobs because you love your wife. Number six, come to grips with the fact that being a great man means great sacrifice. Who's the greatest man who ever lived? It was Jesus, the God-man. You want to talk about a great man? More powerful than anyone ever, ever, ever? The, the, the epitome of greatness? It's Jesus. And what made Him great? Why are we here today? Standing up, sitting down, singing songs, praying, open our Bible, doing all this stuff. Because he's the greatest one ever. The God-man. Why is he great? Because he said, I love you guys. No. Because he did something. He sacrificed. That's why he's great. And you will only be as great men as your sacrifices are. Number seven. Don't treat her like a man. Don't treat her like a man. I could go off on a tangent on this one. I don't know what it is, men. We, we want to marry a woman. We want her to be feminine. We want her to need us, to rely upon us. We want to provide for her. I mean, I don't know of any man. I've never met a man that wanted to marry another man. None of my friends. We want feminine, beautiful, attractive and then something happens. It's sort of like the seven stages of the cold. Even though we still want her to look like a woman, I think we want her to act like a man. Because all of a sudden we talk to her like, like, she's, another, like she's another man. Sometimes worse, we talk to her like an enemy. And we expect her to be all that we are and understand all the things we understand as far as a, a man's perspective. First Peter says she's not a man. Don't treat her like a man. And when you treat her like a man, maybe you need to think, well, maybe I need a... Well, I'm not even going to go there. But number eight, talk to her. Talk to her about her life. Again, that costs your time. 
talk to her about her ministry. That's probably the greatest struggle that I have. Again, time investment, talking, listening. Too many husbands subscribe to this philosophy. It says, husbands were made to be talked to. It helps them concentrate on what they're reading. (laughs) Number nine, spend time with your children if you have them. Spend time with your children if you have them. And I say this and I know this because I've talked to too many wives whose hearts are broken because the very ones that they love so dearly that they've been entrusted with those little children have a father that doesn't spend time with them. They want that. That's a way to show love for your wife. Now, you don't ignore your wife and only do stuff with your kids. But one great way you can show love for your wife is to take your kids and invest your life in them. Number ten, turn off the television. Somebody say amen. Turn off the television. It's hard to do. Molly was gone for a couple of days last night. I had a movie I wanted to watch. And, you know, it was hard. It was easier because I knew I had to preach this sermon. (laughs) I knew we needed to talk. Off. Speak kindly to her. You can cross-reference Ephesians 4.19. Speak kindly to her. We've already kind of talked about that. I cannot believe the way men talk to their wives. I cannot believe it. Number 12, speak kindly about her. Speak kindly about her, whether it's to your children or to your coworkers, or I can't believe the way men talk about their wives. Probably the greatest crime you could ever be caught committing, which is not a crime, is for your wife to hear you saying good things about her to your kids or to somebody else. Number 13, find men who love their wives and befriend them. There are men in this church who love their wives, and I like to watch, and I like to learn. And a lot of what I've learned about how to love my wife, I've learned from other men. And a lot of what I've learned about how not to do it, I've learned from other men. Some great examples. Number 14, I know the list is getting long, but it's worth it. Be future-minded. Think about the future, men. Be future-minded. Love your wife. I know I said you need to spend time with your kids, but be careful. Don't spend all your time with your kids because those kids, Lord willing, are going to move out someday. And there you are. Love your wife and think future-minded. You're going to have your kids for 18 years, maybe longer. And then how much longer are you going to live, Lord willing? I just got my wife. Those kids are moving out. I told the kids yesterday, I can't wait for mom to get home. And we were talking about mom. You know what, kids? Mom is my best friend. Well, they didn't like that too much at first. Well, dad, we're all your best friend. I said, you know what? You guys are moving out. I said, you're going to have kids. You're going to get married. I'm with her. I said, I love all of you equally. But she has a special place. She's my best friend because I have to live with... I didn't say that. (laughs) Number 15, don't forsake your leadership responsibility in the name of love. Don't forsake your leadership responsibility in the name of love. Too many times we think that leadership and love are mutual exclusives. They're not. 
Leadership and love are not mutually exclusive. Sacrifice, give, love, provide, time, invest, lead. You do have to lead. At the end of the day, God is going to hold you accountable for leading your family. Absolutely, men. And and one doesn't cause you to not do the other. I'm a strong leader. It's just how it's going to be. This is what we need to do. And at the end of the day, I know that has to be done. But I hope it's not abrasive. I work hard to have it not be abrasive. And I want to take everything into account. But then at the end of the day, I've got to be the leader. And I've had men just total frustration saying, well, you're just, you're just telling me to just let ever, whatever happen happen because I'm supposed to love my wife and give myself for her. No. Love, 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 love. Sacrifice, sacrifice, sacrifice. But at the end of the day, you've got to lead. Be a man. I think your wife wants that. She wants to be loved and then she wants to follow your loving leadership. Number 16, be sexually pure. Be sexually pure. I mean, one of the greatest motivations for me to not lust after other women, let alone actually be with them, is my love for my wife. Sacrifice for your wife. It causes me to be sexually pure. That's, that's what causes me when I'm at the grocery store. I, I, can, I can spot the Sports Illustrated swimsuit edition or whatever it's called a mile away and not even have to look at it. Why? I, because I'm not attracted to women? Oh, I'm attracted to women. But God gave me one wife, and I love her, and that causes me to say, no, I'm not going to do that for where it causes my heart to go. Also, it includes my love for God, obviously, and what He said to me about purity. Maybe I'll push it and say, to the extent that you're not sexually pure, you're not loving your wife. And number 17 is where I ended last time. Be Spirit-filled. Be Spirit-filled. That means Spirit-controlled. That's Ephesians 5.18. That is the engine that drives the car. That's the launching point. That's the command that leads us into all these family relationships. You've got to be controlled by God's Spirit or you can't do any of these things. So be a godly man. Work hard at being a godly man. Be in the Word. Uh, Be in prayer. Be godly. Be in fellowship with other believers. You're going to be spirit-controlled, spirit-filled, and then you're going to be able to love your wife, even if she's not always the woman that God would want her to be. Well, I do feel like this is more of a men's breakfast than anything else. Hopefully it's helpful. Hopefully it's going to penetrate our hearts and... Hopefully our wives pray for us too so that we do these things. Let's pray and we'll be dismissed. Why don't you stand with me? I know we have one song left. and Let's pray together. Father, thank You for this morning and thank You that we can look at some of these practical things. Lord, we always want to go to Your Word and provide us a, a biblical foundation for everything we do, including even the practical things. Uh, what could be more practical than understanding Christ's great and magnificent love for His church and understanding that that's our model? That's what we're to follow. And Lord, just as He is one flesh with us, Lord, help us as men to act like the one flesh that we are with our wife, to love them, to cherish them, to to do everything possible to show that tangible love for them.
Lord, I pray for wives who are here who have husbands who are not. Because they're gone, they need to hear the message, they're believers. Pray for wives who are here who have husbands who are not here because they don't want to be here, because they either don't know you or are unwilling to do what you call them to do. Lord, I pray that they wouldn't lose heart, that they would trust in you and rest in you. You might minister to them in a way that only you could, the God of all hope, the God of all comfort. Lord, I pray for the men who do have unbelieving wives who are trying zealously to do these things and it's so hard because their wife is unbelieving. Pray that they might find encouragement, that they would not buy the lie of conditional obedience to you when it comes to the family. They would love their wife just like Christ loved the church and they would excel at it and they would see improvement. And Lord, for those who are here today who have a Christian spouse and they are believers themselves, Lord, use us. Use us in our community. Use us as our children watch us. Help us, Lord, to show them Your great love. Help the wives to be submissive as the Bible says and help the husbands to love as the Bible says so that we might paint that beautiful portrait for everyone to see of the great and awesome love that Christ has for us. All for Your glory and all for Your exaltation. You, the Supreme One. In Jesus' name, Amen.